But you can turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25 this morning. So the announcement to Joseph and then the birth of our Lord. So uh, Matthew 1 verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public spectacle, was minded to put her away secretly. While he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife. And did not know her until she brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Our great God, again, we are thankful for the triune work of God to save sinners. And we're thankful for the triune work of God uh, in the fact that the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh. Thank you, O God, for his mission. Thank you, O God, for his cross work. Thank you, O God, for his life that he lives. And thank you that he really does save sinners. He saves his people from their sins. Thank you for this one. Thank you for this deliverer. Thank you for this one who redeems us from the curse of the law. This one who forgives us of our sins. Thank you, O God, that all our trespasses are nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. And thank you. This is why he came to this world. It is to save. And thank you, God. He saves sinners like us. He saves sinners like Paul, that Christ really is the one who brings salvation. And thank you, O God, that he who came signifies that he is Emmanuel, that you are with us, that you dwell amongst us. And even, O God, sometimes we feel as if you are not near. We do not feel your uh, countenance upon us, O God. Help us to cling to your promises day by day that you are God with us and that Christ is God with us and that the spirit is God with us. So may we be reminded of this this day as your saints, as your people, as your uh, the ones you've chosen and called out of darkness. May we know that nearness and may we cling to your promises uh, as we walk this world. And we ask, oh God, again, you'd give us illumination from on high to better understand what is going on in your word. Thank you, oh God, that there are hard things to understand, yet there are blessed things to understand. And may we recognize that it's you who speaks to us in your word and you speak to us even now. So we pray, oh God, you'd strengthen your saints. We pray, oh God, that you would save sinners. And we pray in all things, you would be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as we read the Old Testament, there are many time periods, there are many long stretches where God does not speak to his people. God does not come that often in God's word. There are many periods in which God goes without speaking uh, to his chosen race. And certainly the last time God had spoken to the people of Israel was in the time of Malachi, some 400 years earlier. And so perhaps for many, it seemed like, where is God? Many question, has God forgotten us? Has God left us? Has God not remembered his promises? What of the one who would be that long 
long-awaited Messiah. Israel is under Rome. Israel does not have a king. What of God's promises to bring the kingdom in? What of God's promises to send forth the son of David to save his people? That was a real problem for Israel, and that was still certainly a real problem for the remnant, although the remnant clung to the promises, the promises of Emmanuel, the promises of the stump king who would come, the promises of the child who would come, yet perhaps they sometimes questioned the things of God, sometimes questioned the plan of God, which Perhaps you and I do that very same thing sometimes. We believe God's word. We confess to, 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 to cling to his promises. But sometimes we have our doubts. Sometimes we question whether God is with us or not. And certainly for Joseph, he had his doubts at this time. For him, Christmas was not such a jolly time initially because it looked like his wife was with child. It looked like he had his wife was bearing the son of harlotry. When in reality, he needed God's help to show him that the child that his wife would bear would be the child of majesty. It takes God to show him the truth. It takes God to show him his plan. It takes God to appear to him by way of the angel of the Lord to show him that his wife who is with child is with child by the Holy Spirit. And as God shows Joseph the way, as he shows Joseph the truth, he's also teaching us, the readers, the way of salvation. He's teaching us, the readers, the way of communion. And the way of salvation and the way of communion is with the Lord Jesus Christ. The way of salvation, the way of communion is found in the one who came to save his people from their sins. Now, again, brethren, the problem, I think, is very clear the the sensible absence of God. Again, we've talked about how it was the case for Israel 400 years without God speaking. But again, sometimes for the church of Christ, we face problems, we face struggles, we face problems from within the church, we face threats from without the church, we have sins that we have to deal with, we have problems we have to deal with, and sometimes we question, where is God in the midst of all those problems? Well, thankfully, when we have those times of doubt, we come back to God's word and God speaks to us in his word and reminds us that he truly is with us. This is why the birth of Christ is so comforting, even if it is so mysterious. It comforts the people to remind us that God dwells with us. So in Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25, this miraculous birth signifies that God really is with his people, and he really is with his people to save them. So look at this idea of salvation, this idea of dwelling under the idea of the names that are given to the Lord Jesus Christ, the names that are given to this one who is the child. So the first point will be his name is Jesus, verses 18 through 21. Then secondly, our point, our second point will be his name is Emmanuel, verses 22 through 25. So his name is Jesus, verses 18 through 21. Then secondly, his name is Emmanuel, verses 22 through 25. So let's first look at his name is Jesus in verses 18 through 21. And notice in verses 18 and 19, we see the miraculous conception. That's just, that's following the genealogy of our Lord, which we saw last time. We saw the emphasis in Matthew concerning that royal lineage, the one who comes from David. 
We also saw that fleshly lineage, the one who came from Abraham. And what we saw as well is Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of Israel's history, the time from Abraham to the kings, the time from the kings to the captivity, and the time from captivity until the return or the coming of our Lord. All of Israel's history finds its fulfillment in the one who is the Christ, in the one who is Jesus. And so he says in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. And notice there's going to be a lot of problems, a lot of human problems, so to speak, when it comes to the birth of our Lord. It doesn't go without a hitch. It goes without, it goes with problems, humanly speaking. And notice we see the timing of her being with child. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together. Now, betrothal in the first century was basically marriage. It was a more binding agreement than what we view as engagement. It basically was part one of the marriage. And then when they actually live together, when they actually consummate the marriage, that was point two, the, uh, the, point, uh, the second part of that marriage. And so the bride price has already been paid. At this time, we see that Mary is already betrothed to Joseph, but they have not yet been uh, living together. It was before they came together. And notice we see the wisdom of God even in this. It wasn't just some virgin who wasn't betrothed to anybody. She was actually betrothed to someone, yet before they came together, to protect, to make sure that she was uh, the, the child was not the child of harlotry, but yet still be born of a virgin. So it was when they were betrothed, but the before they came together, which is the exact place the virgin needs to be in order uh, as God unfolds his plan. So before or when she was betrothed to Joseph, but before they had come together, before they lived together. Again, there are many problems. On the one hand, Mary and Joseph can't be married yet, otherwise there would be no virgin birth. But on the other hand, people are going to ask questions. And certainly this is what Joseph does in his mind. He doesn't make it a public thing just yet, but it's a legitimate human concern from Joseph. And so we see then, verse the problem in a lot of ways, verse 18 at the end there, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. We know this at this point. Joseph does not yet. Joseph will have God appear to him and speak to him, but at this time, he doesn't know it just yet. She is found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, notice in Matthew's gospel, it's just a matter of fact, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, something so miraculous is just kind of you read it and it kind of you goes in one ear and out the other because we think of the incarnation hopefully a lot. Yet we sometimes don't stop and think about the significance of what is going on here. She was just found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. How does that happen? How does that occur? What goes on? There are many things that we question when we hear that very line. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, certainly Luke spends a lot of time with the birth announcements. And we see Gabriel appear to uh, a Mary, uh, a Gabriel appeared to Zacharias concerning the forerunner and concerning the, the one who would be born, the son of the most high. But for Matthew, it's just matter of fact. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, theologically, we see here that the work of the incarnation is the entire work of God. 
It is the triune work of God that the son, the second person would take on human flesh. And we see this here with the work of the Holy Spirit overshadowing her with the the Holy Spirit coming down that he would be conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Apostles' Creed says this, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The Nicene Creed was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. Our confession says, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It is the miraculous work of God that he who is God would take on human flesh by way of this miraculous conception and also this miraculous birth. So it is a miraculous conception, but there's a lot of problems, humanly speaking, uh, that it brings uh, when it comes to Mary and Joseph. And certainly we see lots of problems in chapter 2 as well. And certainly the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of the miraculous conception, not immaculate conception. I want to make that very clear. Mary was still sinful. Mary still had original sin. Mary was still wicked. Uh, Certainly she was a redeemed one and saved and a remnant, but she still was not perfect. That's important. I said miraculous conception, not immaculate conception. And it was a miraculous thing that God does here. But certainly there's that theological aspect of who Jesus is, but there's also redemptive historical aspect with the Spirit. Think of who the Spirit would be upon. Think of all the promises and prophecies concerning Isaiah 11, how the Spirit of wisdom would be upon that shoot of Jesse who would come, how the Spirit would be upon the servant, Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. And we'll see certainly servant songs tonight, Oh, uh, in uh, one of the servant songs tonight in Isaiah 50. But not only is he God who takes on human flesh, but he is also given the Spirit of the Messiah. And the prophet spoke about this in times past, that the one who would come would have the Spirit upon him. And even we see the Spirit in operation at his conception, and certainly being uh, being, uh, poured out upon him at his baptism as well. So it's theological, and it is certainly missional in the work of the Son, and even the work of the Son taking on uh, human flesh by the conception of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So miraculous, God's wisdom, yet the problem abounds in verse 19. Bewilderment and divorce is in the view of Joseph here. He has this perplexity, this enigma. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, he would have been a remnant. He would have been part of that remnant race that would have held to and looked forward to the promise to be fulfilled. He would have clung to that promise. Even though God had not spoken, the remnant still relied on that promise. God has not spoken by a prophet in a long time, but yet they still had the promises that they could cling to, like the promise of Emmanuel. And so he's a righteous man. He wants to do what is right by God. He's a God-fearer. And there is this problem. His wife is found to be with child. How, what is he supposed to do with that? He assumes that it was by another man initially. I mean, again, we think, yeah, we hear about miraculous conception and we think about it this time of the year, hopefully every day of the year and every Sunday of the year, hopefully ponder the incarnation often. But for him, it's like, how did this happen? The only human explanation would be that it was another guy who got her pregnant. And so 
What does he consider? What does he wish to do? He's a just man. He doesn't want to be part of harlotry. He doesn't want to be part of her adultery. And some even compare him to Joseph in Genesis who fled adultery. Maybe that's a little bit of a leap, but in any case, it highlights his uh, justness. He doesn't want to, you know, be part of that, but he also kindly and in a merciful way doesn't want to bring shame upon her. He doesn't want to, you know, perhaps have her stoned to death. And so what he does here is he's going to divorce her quietly. Henry says he is loth to believe so ill a thing of whom he believed to be so good a woman. Yet the matter as it is too bad to be excused is also too plain to be denied. What a struggle does this occasion in his breast between that jealousy, which is the rage of man and is cruel is as cruel as the grave. But on the one hand, on the one hand, and the affection which he has for Mary on the other. He loves Mary, but here is this lady who is found to be with child. What shall he do with her? So it is a considerate solution that comes from Joseph. He's not going to make her a public spectacle. He's not going to bring public shame upon her, but he's going to divorce her and put her away quietly. And divorce was required because of the binding nature of this uh, betrothal at that time. So that was his plan. He was minded to do this. But thankfully, we see God with Joseph. That is God uh, 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 helping God, giving him divine guidance in verse 20. He wants to show for he shows forth as he speaks to Joseph by way of the angel. Well, he thought about these things. I mean, that would have been racing through his mind probably every day. How did this happen? What occurred? What should I do? What should happen? What shall I do? And while he thought about these things, notice how God tells him what he needs to hear. Isn't God good that way? I know, brethren, God doesn't always doesn't speak, you know, with angels and dreams uh, anymore. He speaks by way of his word. But isn't God in our Christian walk and our Christian life good to speak to us in his word at the right and appropriate times concerning certain things? Isn't God good in his providence to bring certain people along our path who give us the word we need at those times? God is very good as we're pondering and worrying and considering to give us the wisdom that we need. And God does say in his word that if we lack wisdom, we can ask and he gives it to all liberally. And so here's Joseph praying and crying out and wondering what's going on. And here God appears to him. Now, again, this is a big deal. We don't have Luke uh, um, Luke here. We have Matthew's gospel. And in Matthew's gospel, this is the first time that God has spoken since the Amalekai. Now, again, we know that Gabriel appears to Zacharias first to prepare the way of the forerunner. But in Matthew's gospel, and if you were reading chronologically, you would come here first. It is a huge deal. 400 years after, here comes the angel of the Lord, appears to him in a dream while he's thinking of all these things and gives him assurance. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And we often think how uh, we often forget to think how jarring this would have been for Joseph. And here God gives a comforting word. Joseph, the son of David, now he's a carpenter, He's poor, but he's part of a regal and royal line, and he affirms that in him. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take her as your wife, because he who is in her 
is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid. It is true that this miraculous thing has happened. And so he gives them that affirmation, and then he tells Joseph what name he ought to give to his son. Verse 21. And she, shall, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is a uh, Greek form of Joshua, that is, Yahweh saves. And notice the one whose name is Jesus, his purpose is connected with his namesake. Why is his name Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. This emphasizes the mission of the son. When the son takes on human flesh, what was his purpose for taking on human flesh? Was it to be an example that we all could follow? Was it just for fun or was it for a specific reason? And that specific reason was to save sinners. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's why Jesus came. He came to live a life in perfection obediently. We see this in Philippians 2 and to die as a perfect sacrifice also in Philippians chapter 2. That is why he came. And the reason he came is because we needed deliverance. Man needed salvation. And that uh, this uh, the name of Jesus emphasizes his office and his mission to do that very thing. And notice what the angel of the Lord says. He will save his people from their sins. Right at this birth announcement, before the son is born, he tells us, that his mission is not about national deliverance, is it? His mission is not about grabbing swords and grabbing people and marching on Rome to try and take out the Roman. No, he came to save his people in a still more excellent way. And that is to save people from their wickedness. Man, uh, after Adam uh, was created by God, he made him upright. God made Adam upright, but he sought out his own devices. Adam brought sin into this world, and everyone born into this world is sinful. Original sin is not the first sin. Original sin is that we are born in corruption, that we are guilty legally before God, and that we are actually sinful in our hearts. And we need someone to save us from our sinfulness and from our wickedness. We need someone to save us from our sin. So it's going to be greater than some sort of earthly place in Israel, but it's meant to be a greater, far greater Israel, a heavenly Jerusalem as our sins are taken away. He's going to save his people from their sins. But also notice his people. Who are his people? Now, if typically, if you're a Jew, you would think you would be you, his people, right? Because Israel was the chosen race. But as Matthew unfolds, and even as it starts, we see glimpses that his people don't just include Jews, but also include Gentiles. And throughout the Old Testament, there were many Gentiles who foreshadowed the coming in, that the, even to the, 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 the servant in Isaiah 49, God says to him that Israel's too small. You need something greater for what you have done. You need the ends of the earth. 
And so the one who is the servant in Isaiah 49 is going to spread his gospel to the ends of the earth. It's not just for Jew, but also for Greek. And I think we even see that in that language of his people based on the context, because in the genealogy, there are plenty of Gentiles, right? Mainly Gentile ladies. I mean, all four of those ladies there. I mean, Tamar was a Canaanite. And then who's next? Oh, Rahab was a Jerichoite. And then who's next? Ruth was a Moabite. And Bathsheba, or her who is of the or was the wife of Uriah, is a Hittite. And we see those glimpses, don't we? That he will save his people from their sins. And even as well as Matthew unfolds, if I were to ask you the question, where in the Gospels is the word church used? You would say only in Matthew. <laughs> Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. That doesn't mean the church is not important, by the way. I know there's some wise guy out there who's going to say, see, it's only used three times by the Lord. No, it's still important to our Lord as the New Testament unfolds. But Matthew specifically, Matthew 16, uh, Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Not calling him the first pope, but on this confession of faith, upon the faith in him, uh, in Christ, you will build my church. And Peter does play a role in building that church. In Matthew 18, we have that section about church discipline and what that looks like. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, we have Matthew 28. And I do think the Great Commission does refer to the advancement of the church. And he says, go make disciples of what? All nations. Because those who are his people make up both Jew and Gentile. And the way in which he brings in his elect is through salvation in Christ, through the preaching of the word, as it goes forth. So he, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. And we needed this one who is perfection to be born of a virgin. Spurgeon says, there was no other way of his being born. For had he been of a sinful father, how would he have possessed a sinful nature? But he is born of a woman that he might be human and not by man that he might not be sinful because we thankfully have one who is sinless to save his sinful people from their sins and brethren thankfully we can see here again the god who saves brethren you and i have commit real sins don't we we have committed real sins that is as we consider god's law as we consider the ten commandments that's where we learn what sin is 1 John 3, 4, when he talks, uh, 1 John 3, 4, for sin is lawlessness, violating God's law teaches us what sin is. Now, even as Jesus teaches us in Matthew 5, it's not just external, but internal, right? Every word, thought, and deed is, uh, vi every word, thought, and deed that violates God's law is worthy of everlasting punishment because we have sinned against a perfect and everlasting God. And thankfully, the one who is perfect and everlasting God is the one who took on human nature, yet without sin, like us in every way, yet without sin. But it's because of our wickedness, brethren. It's because of our vileness, brethren. Even that remaining corruption that we still have is a sign that we, still, that we have been redeemed from the thing that which we need to be redeemed from, namely our wickedness now again i tried to highlight a couple weeks ago who we are in christ we've been died with him we've been buried with him we've been raised with him but we still struggle with remaining corruption and thankfully as we still struggle it reminds us where our salvation comes from only god can save right 
And only our salvation comes in him. And in the salvation that he brings, he gives us all we need, right? He, when we think about justification, that work of, or that act of God by which we are pardoned of our sins and we have a righteousness not our own, that deals with the guilt of our sin. Or sanctification, which is the work of God's free grace by which we die unto sin and grow into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ that deals with our corruption, you see, we have been given everything in the work of our Savior, and only salvation comes from him. And this is very clear in Isaiah 45, verse 17. There the, pro or the Lord says, but Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. Verse 21. And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a savior. There is none beside me. And then verse 22, which if you go to the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Spurgeon was the pastor, that verse 22 is right up high there as the preacher is preaching. Look to me and be saved all ye ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God is the savior. Jesus is the savior. And it's not just for Jew, but all ye ends of the earth, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And if you're an unbeliever in Christ today, that is the call to you. Look unto Christ and be you saved. Look unto him and find forgiveness in him. Believe that he is the way of salvation and believe that he lived, died, and rose again and believe that he is God. If you don't believe that he is God, then you don't believe in the one who saves. Believe upon him and you shall be saved and find forgiveness for your sins. Because this is what he came to do, to save his people from their sins. So thankfully, his name is Jesus. We're also thankful that his name is Emmanuel, verses 22 to 25. And notice Matthew's emphasis in the birth narratives uh, is mainly on the fulfillment. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Notice, spoken by the Lord through the prophet, verse 22, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. What's interesting, too, is many of the prophecies in Matthew's birth narrative are all in the midst of bereavement and sorrow concerning exile. I mean, it's all the exilic type theme is prevalent in all of the prophecies that we shall be seeing and that we have seen in the past. So that the remnant, when they went into captivity would have not done so without some hope. Isn't God good that way too? Exile is still going to come for Israel as a whole, but the true believers, the remnant still in Israel, are going to have hope. Even though God might not speak to them for a long period of time, they're still going to have hope. And one of the ways in which they have hope is in this prophecy concerning Emmanuel. And this comes from Isaiah chapter 7. You can turn back to Isaiah chapter 7. It's during the time of the Syro-Ephraimite coalition, that is Syria and the northern kingdom of Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel, or sorry, Samaria is the capital, uh, Israel in the north, Syria and Israel are trying to take up the southern kingdom, Judah, 
Ahaz is king at this time. Ahaz was a very bad king, not a good king at all. And rather than trusting in God with us, he wants to trust in Assyria with us. That is, he wants to trust in Assyria rather than trust in God. And so God says to Ahaz, I'll give you a sign, any sign you want. God condescends to him in this way and says, any sign you wish, I'll give it to you. But Ahaz tries, he sounds holy and pious, but he's not. Verse 12, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. You see, he's already got a sure thing in Assyria, right? Or a sure thing in another nation rather than God. And so what does God then say? This is where he then gives the promise of Emmanuel. And the promise of Emmanuel actually starts as a sign of judgment, doesn't it? Remember we preached, I preached this a couple of years ago. I preached, I think I looked at it last year. I'll admit there's some passages I like preaching. I'll just, let me rephrase that. There are some passages that I really love preaching. There are some passages that I just like preaching. And I think Emmanuel was one of those passages that I just really loved preaching. I should probably love every passage I preach, but some of them are just... I don't know, a little, uh, maybe it hit me in the right time when I needed it. And Emmanuel was one of those ones. But what's interesting is Emmanuel starts off as a sign of judgment. God will not be with you, Ahaz. God will not be with you because you've chosen Assyria rather than me. It is a sign of judgment. And notice too, it's all in exile type language. Verse 15 of Isaiah 7, curds and honey he shall eat that he may know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So it's a time of exile, a time of desolation when he would come. Verse 16, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land, singular, that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. What I think is going on here, and a lot of commentators try to figure out, is there some sort of a manual that comes in the 8th century? This is 700 years before Christ comes and he gives this prophecy. And so people try to highlight, is it, is it maybe Hezekiah? Is it, is it maybe Maher Shalal Hashbaz in Isaiah 8? But I think the key thing to understand there is the singular land. He's not saying when Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel are gone, he's saying the land singular and her kings. And the land singular there refers to Israel. And both her kings, Judah and Israel, are forsaken. What he's saying here is the virgin and Emmanuel shall not come until after exile. There's going to be a time when both lands shall be forsaken, and Emmanuel is not going to come until that time. And the hope is that God, uh, the hope that the remnant has is that God will be with them as they walk through and into exile. And then we see in Isaiah chapter 8, we do see Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Uh, that's a mouthful. Uh, he, uh, that, the, the, uh, uh, his coming, his uh, being born uh, is a sign that the Syro-Ephraimite war has ended. But Assyria is still going to come. And who will be with God when Assyria comes, which comes during Hezekiah's time when Sennacherib basically gets all the way to Judah, but Emmanuel. Verse 8. Assyria is going to come. They're going to basically go all the way up to the capital city. We'll fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And then here's the words of the remnant in the face of that, verses 9 and 10. Be shattered, O you peoples. Be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. 
for God is with us. So the remnant could trust in this promise, even when Assyria uh, basically made it all, all the way to Judah, and then God, to the angel of the Lord, routes Sennacherib, and Judah remains for a little while longer before they're taken in 586. But the promise of Emmanuel has exile written all over it. Same with the child in Isaiah 9, the one we like to quote a lot. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That is after exile. So thankfully, again, God gives his people comfort as they go into exile with these promises, even just in the name, the name Emmanuel. That's why in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, again, brethren, we need to not just sing it because we love Christmas tunes, but we need to sing it and recognize the theology that's there. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. What Matthew is then saying with this coming of the one whose name is Jesus is that this has been fulfilled in the virgin's womb. The virgin shall be with child. Mary shall be with child. She shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Not that he was called Emmanuel as a nickname in his life or anything like that, but it signifies what it means. It signifies that God is with his people. It also signifies that Jesus really is God and the way in which God dwells with us is in the incarnation. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In him, the fullness of the deity dwells bodily, Colossians 2.9 and Colossians 1.18. But we see it fulfilled in the promise. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And what's interesting is even before we get to the actual quote, Matthew's giving us hints. The language of with child in verse 18 is the same language of with child in verse 23. And also shall bear a son. That language is also in verse 21 and verse 25 as well. And then we see the full-blown quote in verse 23. Remember, this is why Matthew writes to show forth and to see that in Christ, there is fulfillment in the all the law and the prophets point to him. So his name is Emmanuel, and then we see his birth in verses 24 and 25, his miraculous birth. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. His obedience to what the angel has said, he marries her and does not know her. Notice how God fulfills his promise in this way. He does so by prompting, but also preserves by way of providence using Mary and Joseph as a marriage to cover that very thing up, took to him his wife, and he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And firstborn, again, certainly can refer to preeminence, doesn't always have to mean an actual order. We know that Jesus is the firstborn in of the of cre- over creation, the firstborn over the church in Colossians 1. He has the highest place is what that means. But here it really does refer to the one who is the firstborn. Uh, of Mary. That is, he is the firstborn proper. He is the firstborn to come because it again preserves the miraculous birth. She really was a virgin. 
and she really gave birth to this one who is a son. And notice they call his name Jesus. He does exactly what the angel of the Lord commanded. God is with Joseph. God is with his people. God has come to save his people in the work of the son, namely Jesus, who saves his people from their sins. Now, brethren, that language and that name, Emmanuel, ought to be something that gives us comfort. Because you see, the Bible tells us we are what? Exiles. This world really is not our home. We are making our way to the place that is called our home. And we need to be reminded of God's dwelling with us as we make our way to that celestial city. The language of exile is used in First Peter. And certainly we are longing for that. We hope for that. When we gather as the church, it's a glimpse. It's, an, it's like a consulate. It's like an, a, an embassy. It's like we're in heaven. We are in heaven, but we're not quite fully there just yet. That's why church is so vital and so important. But thankfully, brethren, as we make our way, we can be reminded God really is with us. Even if we don't feel it, let's be honest, most of the time we don't feel it, right? <laughs> most of the time we don't feel like God is near. Most of the time we don't feel as if he is close. But thankfully, that's why we come and read his word to be reminded that he is close. God, you said that you are close. God, you said that you are with us. And for again, for that remnant, as they were walking in exile, the promise of Emmanuel, the promise of the child, and the promise of the shoot reminded them that God was with them, even though God didn't speak by way of the prophet. God still spoke in the promises that they clung to as they walked in exile. And thankfully, brethren, we have God's promises in his word on our phones, hopefully in our minds, hopefully we listen to it that if we are forgetful of the promises of God, we can come right back to his word and be reminded of that promise of Emmanuel. And thankfully, that promise of Emmanuel is a similar promise that Christ gives in Matthew 28. You can turn to Matthew 28. Don't miss the promise, the last thing Jesus says in the Great Commission. The last thing that Jesus says harkens back to this Emmanuel prophecy. After Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, after Jesus then tells his disciples to go uh, make disciples, after he tells them to baptize and to teach, what does he say? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Those whom he has saved are those with whom he dwells. And brethren, he dwells with his church even now. He dwells with his church as it advances as an institution. He dwells with his people who make up that church. Behold, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. It's what John Patton cling to, that one who went to the cannibals to preach the gospel to them. Behold, I am with you always. And brethren, that is the promise that Christ has given to us. In Matthew 28, it's the promise that God gives to us. In Matthew 1, it's the promise that God gives to us in Isaiah chapter 7, that he really is Emmanuel, and he really has saved us. Davis says, and this he's commenting on Isaiah 7, but it's still good for us. He says, here is what steals the soul of God's people, what fortifies them in the face of every peril. He himself has promised to be there in all their trouble, in a word, Emmanuel. 
Or we could say in a name that is the one whose name is Jesus, the one whose name is Emmanuel. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are thankful that the son was the one born of a virgin, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, Mary. Thank you, O God, that he came into this world. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Thank you that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. Thank you that he ascended into heaven and is seated at your right hand. And from thence he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. And we're thankful as we hope and as we await Christ's coming, O God. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are with us in the, you know, were with us in the incarnation and are with us in the incarnation. And thank you that you are with us by the spirit who's been poured out. And so may we know the salvation of our sins, O God, that we have in Christ. All of them have been nailed to the cross, past, present, and future. We pray if there are any here today who do not know you, we pray that they would find salvation in Christ, forgiveness for their sins, forgiveness for the wicked things that they think, for the wicked things that they say, and for the wicked things that they do. There is forgiveness in Christ. And we're thankful that this one who is Jesus is God. And we're thankful that he signifies and he truly is God with us. And may we take great comfort in this as we are pilgrims along the way. May we take great comfort in the promises that we have, O God. And may we appreciate the incarnation for its mystery, but also appreciate the incarnation for the comfort that it brings uh, to weary, to heavy laden, and for weighed down sinners as we walk this world. May we walk with joy. May we walk with gladness. May we walk with hope. And may we trust in the one whose name is Jesus. So be with us now by your spirit. Help us as we go into the world. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.